ஒருத்தரும் a few weeks ago we had that class what makes art spiritual and we use the deep insights of the kashmir shaiva masters regarding consciousness to explain what it is about being conscious that makes for art similarly today we're going to ask what is it about language what is it about speaking words communication what is it about any of that that is sacred is holy because all of us into it there is something sacred about speech something sacred about language most of the spiritual traditions in the world have room for some kind of language based creation theory so for instance in the gospel of john in the beginning was the word the greek word there is logos and the word was with god and the word was god Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for the word to be with God? And what does it mean for the word to be God? Can we say a bit more about God as word? That's exactly what we're going to do today. Because it's not just in the Gospel of John. It's all over the Vedas. You know, you have this Vak Devi or Vach, who is actually a daughter of a Rishi, but she identifies herself with the great goddess. And she's the embodiment of all speech. And she, you know, uh, expresses things as if she were Brahman. And of course, we get phrases like Shabdha Brahman or Nadha Brahman, the sound Brahman or the vibration Brahman. And of course, there are phrases of Brahman having spoken the world into existence. Um, or how in, in, in the Genesis story, in the beginning, you know, God says, let there be light or something like that. And then there was light like that. So this kind of stentorian voice in the sky that speaks and through speaking creates, that's a motif we find in many different world religions, many different spiritual traditions. Today, we're actually going to really get down to the nuts and bolts of it and ask the question, well, what's all that about? Can you explain why God is word, why God is sound, why God is vibration? And interestingly, we can't. because kashmir shaivism or the shaiva exegesis of kashmir between the period 900 and 1050 ad which features of course commentarial traditions on tantric texts from a non-dual kind of left hand kaula point of view they um, these masters that is obsessively considered the relationship between language and spirituality they thought there was something about particularly the sanskrit language and the way the sanskrit language related to the absolute principle pure non-dual consciousness or brahman what they preferred to call shiva and they through rigorous meditative experimentation and through subtle philosophical systems articulated what today we're going to discuss as the trika mysticism or the linguistic mysticism of the trika um now a lot of this i'll just say here at the top of the lecture just to be at risk of being too academic and technical but let me just say this a lot of this um was inspired by a 5th century sage named batrahari so batrahari was a grammarian but also a language philosopher so he was very interested in sanskrit grammar and he wrote some books on grammar proper but because it's sanskrit and sanskrit is always closely associated to vedic ritualism to puja to sacred texts and you have to have a strong grasp of sanskrit to be able to understand texts like the upanishads to do this exegetical work require some you know sanskrit know how and so batrahari although he's a grammarian by by virtue of it being the sanskrit grammar he was also a deeply inspired spiritual philosopher a sage by all accounts and he was perhaps one of the most important voices in india um first or pioneering voices i would say in india regarding this uh 
linguistic mysticism that today we're going to explore a bit more. However, after Batrahari, and Batrahari was, you know, really associating Brahman with sound. He was interested in that old Vedic idea of the Shabda Brahman, the word God or the sound God. But his, his ideas are quite arcane, very, very profound, yet difficult to understand. And his successors maybe didn't really know what to make of it. But then some centuries later, the Kashmiri Shaiva masters show up. Utpala Deva, he considers this philosophy and is deeply inspired by it. And he comes up with a linguistic mysticism premised upon that. And of course, even before Utpala Deva, there are Trika masters all throughout the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century AD who were engaging with these ideas of linguistic mysticism and give us what today we're going to discuss. So um, I hope you're excited. It's a very subtle and profound philosophy. So then why the topic? Can you become enlightened from YouTube videos? Why that topic? Well, because... Um, really what this talk is about, although we're discussing the subtle philosophical language systems of the Trika, really what this talk is about is an inquiry into the use of language in conveying spiritual experience or in conveying spiritual teaching. To what extent can you tell someone the truth? I mean, you can point it out, but until they see it for themselves, um, they're not helped thereby by all of your gesticulating and gesturing and posturing and languaging, right? So to what extent is language a viable medium for spiritual instruction? Uh, essentially, what's the relationship between the word and that wordless experience, which is called reality? Tattva or paratattva or anuttara, the highest supreme reality, if any, right? So that's what this conversation is really about, because there are two ends of the spectrum here when it comes to the question, to what extent can language help in spirituality? On one end, you have people who are obsessed with language who mistake the concept for reality. So their concepts about Brahman to them feel like Brahman itself, Brahman being the non-dual absolute of Vedanta. They mistake their concepts for Shiva with a direct intimate experience of the wordless wonder called Shiva, right? They mistake the, as famously the Sufi Persian prophets and, and, and many Buddhists would say, they famously mistake the reflection of the moon in the lake for the moon itself or the finger pointing to the moon for the moon itself, like that. So you get this type of person who is too impressed by words. So typically this is the kind of person who watches a lot of YouTube videos, right? Who reads a lot of books, who attends a lot of lectures and is really, really excited to hear everything and anything about spiritual life. And they saturate themselves, filling themselves to the brim with spiritual concepts. And this is wonderful. It's exciting. It's intellectually thrilling. And up to a certain point, it's helpful. But then sooner or later, this type of person will recognize Though I can give fine lectures about Brahman, I don't feel like Brahman. Though I can assert that I am Brahman, that I am the non-dual absolute, and though I can parrot back clever arguments demonstrating my Brahmanhood, I somehow or other don't act according to what I claim to know. So there's a gap, typically, we find between what we know and what we do, between what we understand and how we live, challenging whether or not we really understood, whether or not we really know. So intellectual knowledge or concepts in the mind don't necessarily trickle down into action, into embodied wisdom, into lived reality. So just knowing that you're Brahman doesn't seem to be enough, despite the promise of the Upanishads. Now in the Mundaka Upanishad, you know what it says? The beautiful line there, it says, a Brahma Veda Brahmheva Bhavati, which means to know Brahman is to be Brahman. That's it. It's a beautiful phrase because it's already true of this moment the ultimate reality, the ultimate teaching of the Upanishads. To know it is to not only become it, but to be it, to recognize that you are always it and always will be it, timelessly it, even now. 
So the promise of the Mundaka Upanishad is to know it, which means to see it through the, the pointing of the Upanishads, to see it is to be it. Right? However, a lot of people attend lectures, read the Upanishads themselves, read countless commentaries, you know, Mandukya Upanishad, then the commentary of Gaudapada, then the commentary of Shankara, then the commentary of Anandagiri, then the commentary of their guru, and then the comment, you know, just read all these different commentarial texts. And they, and they know, they really know, they know because they can give lectures on it. They know because they are familiar with all the argument. They know because they can memorize and repeat. But do they really know? Because they have not yet become. Okay, so that's the first thing I want to address. There's this seeming disjunct between intellect and understanding, between knowledge and wisdom. So leading one to almost conclude, perhaps too hastily, that knowledge can never be taught. It must be discovered by each and every person for themselves. And at best, you can hint, at best, you can imply, but you can never directly convey, which I think is a rather harrowing proposition. Every man, woman, person for themselves. Spooky, right? Ooh. You just have to. And, and you know what? This, this can be infuriating because a person who takes this position um, might start to uh, be a little condescending. Like, I've seen it, but you haven't. And I can't help you see it. You have to see it for yourself like that, you know? But there's a great wisdom to this. The understanding that there is often a disjunct between what we know and what we like. No. Okay. So you know what I want to say just to this camp? I want to say, uh, to the question, is it possible to convey spirituality? Is it possible to become enlightened from watching YouTube videos, from reading books? Yes, absolutely yes. But you have to know how to interact with the material. There's a certain modality, a certain technique, a certain approach that is more embodied, more energetic, more contemplative, more meditative, essentially more like sadhana than merely passive reception of instruction. So hopefully today, by the end of the lecture, we'll learn a technique, a modality for listening, for learning, for integrating, for working with intellectual concepts. And I'm going to, in the course of this lecture, distinguish two types of intellectual concepts. One, which only creates more noise and busyness in the mind, and the other, which has an inbuilt self-destructive mechanism capable of taking you beyond the concept to the direct wordless experience of reality for yourself, right? Okay, so now on the other end of the spectrum, so like I almost already implied this, but on the other end of the spectrum, there are those who don't believe in words at all, right? They just feel like, okay, the map is not the territory. How could it be? There's a big difference between looking at a map and standing there in the middle of the city, right? All the sights and the sounds. There's a big difference between the map and territory. And you know what? Somewhat immaturely, somewhat naively, people who come to this conclusion will hastily tear up all maps even before they get to the city. Right? They, they become kind of, they condescend to maps, they condescend to uh, teachings, they condescend to books because they feel like, after all, the map is not the territory, right? <laughs> they tear up the maps, uh, thereby cutting themselves off from the possibility of going to where the map points. Maps are very helpful, right? But are all maps the same? Certainly not. There are some maps that because they are uniquely mapped onto reality, have the potential of taking you beyond them to your own direct intimate experience. And there are other maps that confound you and send you in circles. So in order to get rid of the second, the latter, they a lot of the times also denigrate the former. They decide that all maps are the same. All words are just wordy, right? They somehow decide hastily that because some words make more noise, therefore all words are noisy and therefore all words are pointless, which I think is a very under nuanced view. So what you're going to get from Tantra is that um, and particularly the Tantra of Abhinava Gupta and others, 
is that there are two types of verbal delusion, two types of vikalpa, two types of busyness, two types of concept. One is called ashuddha vikalpa, and I'll put it in the chat. This is the first concept I think I'd like to um, share with you today, ashuddha uh, vikalpa. Now, vikalpa, it's a very beautiful phrase. It means fancy or verbal delusion or differential thought construct. I've heard some people describe it, or maybe even like an oversimplification. Vikalpa is, is, is a linguistic tool that we use to make sense of an infinitely rich and varied reality. So we look around us and we see a world that's teeming with possibility and overwhelmed by the richness. We superimpose onto it meaning-making structures, labels, names, language, and therefore we sculpt, shape, filter for a certain experience of reality. And most of the time, we are so unskilled with our labeling, meaning-making, language structures that we create quite the nightmare for ourselves, <laughs> right? We create a world of things that we need to have that we just can't quite get our hands on and things that we need to get rid of that we just can't seem to escape. We create a world of people with their judgments and their expectations. We create a world essentially of plurality, of diversity. And this duality, this basic duality is what the Shaiva masters claim causes all forms of suffering. And this is just delusion. We've superimposed onto a non-dual absolute truth, a relative dual untruth, right? And this is Shankara's famous rope snake example. There is a real rope, meaning there is some absolute reality. However, we don't interact with it. We don't interface it because we have superimposed onto it in our ignorance an, a, a, an illusory snake. So we look at the world and we say, it's a world of plurality. We look at the rope and call it a snake, but it's actually a rope, you see. So this is Ashuddha Vikalpa. This is what we call the Avarana Shakti of Brahman, the power of Brahman to conceal itself from itself. I'm using Vedantic language, but in a Kashmir Shaiva way. Right, just to kind of make a point about the tantra-sized Vedanta we get in medieval India. Anyway, so this Avrana Shakti, this Avidya Maya, Sri Ramakrishna says, is the power of Brahman to hide himself from himself. After all, and let me be technical a bit more, in these traditions, this is non-duality. So there can't be anybody apart from Brahman. So if I say, I am the one who superimposed onto reality, this duality, then I, ha I can't be, I can hardly be something other than Brahman. So it must be Brahman who's doing this, right? So let's say Brahman can do this. Brahman can veil himself from himself, herself from herself. Ashuddha Vikalpa, uh, Avrana Shakti, or Avidya Maya. These are all Sanskrit phrases that essentially mean the same thing. Verbal delusion, concealing the true nature of things. Okay, so there's a great risk of that second category of person assuming that all words are like this. You see how this can happen? If a person realizes that some words are like this, some thoughts and some concepts are like this, they could hastily conclude that all words, all thoughts, all concepts are like this. And therefore, they become hostile to any kind of verbal teaching. Do you know the type? I'm sure you do, right? The tear up all the maps type, the condescend to scriptures and books type. Okay, anyway. So, however, to these types of people, Abhinava Gupta offers a response. He says, there's another type of vikalpa. It's called shuddha vikalpa. Now, it is still a vikalpa. So he's not going to deny that the thought is not the reality to which it points, or rather is not entirely the reality to which it points. He's not going to deny that this isn't some kind of oversimplification. He's not going to deny that this isn't like, you know, um, a differential thought construct pointing to reality while itself not being reality. He's not going to deny that. However, 
Abhinava Gupta and the other Tantra uh, masters of this time, these other Tantrikas are going to say, this is a special type of Vikalpa, which unlike the Ashuddha Vikalpa, has the potential to take you beyond itself to a wordless, direct, intimate experience of reality. And therefore, it's a map that works. It's a ladder that can be climbed. It's a raft that can be used to get to the other end of the shore. And once you succeed in doing that, you can kick off the ladder. All right? You can throw away the raft. You can drop the map and play in the city. So ultimately, realization that is coming into contact with reality as it is, the reality within you and the reality without you, that realization is wordless, certainly. And for it to be stable, it must be wordless. Because if it's premised on words, then you become very clingy and very attached to those words. You become so attached to the concept of enlightenment because you've conflated the concept with the wordless experience. So ultimately, a Shuddha Vikalpa should dissolve and leave you in wordless wonder for the rest of your life, right? Or at least give you a glimpse until it gets occluded again. And then you use that Shuddha Vikalpa to get another glimpse. So that's Abhinava Gupta's concept of differentiating two types of Vikalpas. And you'll see it in Ramakrishna too. He differentiates Vidya Maya from Avidya Maya. So some Maya is really Maya in that it occludes. It creates a smokescreen between you and reality miring you more and more in the dualistic notion that I am separate from everything around me. But other forms of Maya are um, Vidya Maya in that using words, using body, using all those things that previously occluded reality, that kind of Maya reveals reality unto you. So I hope I haven't beaten a dead horse more dead, but I hope this is clear because the rest of the lecture is premised upon our understanding that there is such a thing called Shuddha Vikalpa. So what are they? What kinds of Shuddha Vikalpa have you been exposed to? Well, first and foremost, um, the Shuddha Vikalpa of the six layers of the self. And I'll put that up on the screen again. And this is something that we've been looking at for the last, I don't know, however many lectures, quite a few lectures, actually. We've been looking at the same diagram for so long. And notice how much we've gotten out of it. So I'm going to put that diagram back on the, on the board, I guess. So this diagram, it's a bit like the Panchakosha Viveka of the Taittiriya Upanishad, but with many differences, um, some differences. Now notice, this diagram shows you the six layers of your being. Obviously, it's not accurate in that these six layers aren't as discrete as this diagram makes it out to be, but it's accurate in that it points you to something beyond itself. So here, the diagram says your outermost sense of self is your stuff, what you own. Um, slightly subtler and more intimate than that is the body. Even subtler than that is the mind. Even subtler than that is the prana, your vitality. Even subtler than that is the absence of all content, which you experience either in deep sleep or in deep meditation. Now, for you to premise your personhood on any one of these layers will come with certain consequences. So we had a lecture way back called, um, I am everyone and I own everything, in which we use this model to understand that everything exists uh, in consciousness and therefore is made of consciousness. And since I myself am that consciousness, I therefore own everything and am everything, which should be the death to all notions of greed and lust, etc. But notice we use this model to articulate a teaching. And then through that teaching, hopefully we could have, oh my God, it went away. Sorry. I accidentally, I was trying to let someone in and then I accidentally clicked stop share. Okay, sorry. So through that experience, we come face to face with reality. And the reality here is just called chit, pure awareness, pure non-dual consciousness, the one without a second, 
the essence of who you are and the very substance and substratum for the appearance of all of this. So notice, we used words. In fact, we used an image. And through words and an image, we were able to convey, hopefully, to what degree we were successful in doing it, who can say, but we were able to convey some wordless experience of your true being here and now in the immediacy of your own experience through this model. Now, that's only one thing. Then the next week, we looked at another way to interact with this. And we asked the question, what makes art spiritual? Then we use this exact same model to articulate an art theory, an aesthetic theory, which hopefully transforms the way you taste and smell and touch and hear. Then the week after that, interestingly, we use this exact same model to, to garner some insights about what we should do for a career. Remember that lecture, tantric career advice? And we said, if you work for any of these outer shells, um, there's always going to be dissatisfaction like that. So if you're doing things for money or if you're doing things for physical pleasure, or if you're doing things for concepts in the mind, or if you're doing things for the thrill of peak experiences, or even if you're escaping into the Himalayas, all of that will be dissatisfying because all of that is not what you truly are at your essence. So notice the same model was able to give us a slightly different insight an insight about vocation, about career, and about why our job might suck if indeed it does suck. <laughs> so then the week after that, after we had the tantric career advice lecture, then we had the lecture, Five Signs of Enlightenment. So here, let me um, stress that enlightenment, by enlightenment, we mean the direct experience of reality and being established in that reality forevermore without the need of a concept to keep you there. So although a concept might have brought you there, um, that concept no longer is required. And you can just wordlessly stay, abide in this insight about who you are and what this world is. So reality, capital R, coming into contact with it directly and being established in it forevermore, wordlessly, non-conceptually, that's by definition enlightenment. And notice we were able to um, fill up an hour and 50 minutes of lecture talking about what that enlightenment would look like or be like or the symptoms of that enlightenment. The famous Sthitta Pragya conversation at the end of chapter two in the Bhagavad Gita. We gave a tantric reading of that using this model, right? So what? That's like one, two, three, four. It's like five lectures um, based on this one model. And we were able to say so many things coming at it from so many different angles. And each time we came at it, uh, we got something new out of it. And by something new, I don't mean a new idea, but a new way of experiencing the wordless wonder of your own being. Do you see? So then what is this? What is this diagram? Abhinava Gupta would say, this is a Shuddha Vikalpa. This is a special key. It's a doorway to the divine. Because unlike other Vikalpas, which can serve to confuse you, this sacred diagram and the teaching contained within it can serve to free you. It's a door, not a wall. At, at, at very least, it's a window, if not a door. It's a window that you can open and climb out of. But even short of that, it's a window that you can look through and at least glimpse your true being. So this is a Shuddha Vikalpa. Okay. So, so far, so good, right? Today, I'd like to give you another Shuddha Vikalpa, and it's called the four levels of the word. And I'm going to say that awareness is none other than the supreme word. And there are four levels of reality to that word. The outermost me being dualistic language and the innermost being pure awareness itself. Okay, and that's a new vikalpa, a new shuddha vikalpa that I'd like to place before you. Now, 
The promise of this lecture is that by understanding the Shuddha Vikalpa, not only will you understand the linguistic mysticism of the Trika, not only will you understand how to learn, we're going to learn how to learn, but also you'll understand something about Japa. What is it about mantra that makes it an especially powerful spiritual practice? So much so that almost all the major esoteric traditions of the world use some form of Japa. In Christianity, especially Orthodox Christianity, it's the Lord's Prayer. In Islam, it's Zikir. In, in Buddhism and in yoga and in Jainism, it's Japa, recitation of a mantra given by a guru in an initiation. So what is that? What's going on there? So by understanding this Vikalpa, this concept called the four levels of the word, you'll be able to understand Japa too. And also you'll be able to understand Puja and why mantras are effective in puja. Essentially, we'll get a new take on the Sanskrit language, if not all language, right? So that's the promise of this lecture. To what extent we deliver only manos. So are you excited? That's what we're going to do. Okay. That was, that was fun. The preamble itself, I enjoyed that so much. Now let's get into it properly. The linguistic mysticism of the trika. Words and their relation to wordless reality. Spirituality as expressed in language. Okay. See, it's a broad topic, so I'm not really sure how to... You know, like the skipping rope is going really fast and you're waiting and you're about to jump into the skipping rope and you know that it's going so fast that if you jump in at the wrong time, it's going to tangle around your ankles, you're going to eat shit. That's what I think is about to happen right now. I'm looking at the skipping rope, go... <laughs> And the, th the two yoginis and dakinis who are spinning this rope are not taking it easy on me. <laughs> so here we go. I'm going to jump in. Let's see. There's one thing first and foremost that you have to understand. And that is all of experience happens between these two phrases, aham and idam. Aham in Sanskrit means I am. And idam in Sanskrit means this. So all of the experiences that you can have in your life, whether in waking life or in dreaming life or even in deep sleep life, all of it is premised upon the subject, me, the object, this, and also that third relational property between the two of us. So aham, idam, and also sambandha. Aham, me, idam, this, sambandha, the relationship between those two. Okay, so this trinity of knower, knowing, known is foundational and fundamental to any experience I can have of this world. Now, from this trinity, Sankhya is able to show you something about yourself, which is quite startling and wonderful. So Sankhya, this is the first vikalpa that we're going to use in today's lecture to arrive at this Shuddha vikalpa of the four levels of the word. Okay, so Sankhya gives us this vikalpa, this verbal construct. So follow it closely. There's always a distinction between you, the seer, and that which you see. And you've heard this ad nauseum, but really hear it. Also, there's a fun interactive activity at the end of this lecture. It's going to involve you teaching the rest of the class. Okay, so pay careful attention because I'm going to call upon you to re-explain these very concepts which are now being explained. And, and I'll show you why that would be even valuable to do in the context of this new way of of understanding word and language. Oh, by the way, those of you who do Advaita Vedanta, you know, right? There's the Shravana Mangan, uh, Manana Nididhyasana process. You hear it and then you think about it and then you live according to it. This is a commentary on that process, which you don't really hear very much about. It seems like it's just, it's supposed to be self-explanatory. You listen to the teacher, you think about what the teacher said, and then you live according to that. As Nisargadatta Maharaj famously said, my guru told me I was Brahman, I believed him and I lived accordingly. That's, that's the process. 
The guru says something, you hear it, you contemplate it, meaning you don't accept it prima facie. You have to understand what the guru said. And then having understood, you live according to that. You realize, right? So hearing, understanding, realizing. There are three steps to doing philosophy, um, at least according to the Jnana Marga or the tradition of philosophy in Vedanta, okay? But no one really tells you how to listen or how to contemplate and more importantly, how to integrate. That's something that's maybe underdeveloped in, in I would argue, the languaging around Shravana, Manana, and Vidyasana. But I believe that with this model that we're going to uncover together, we'll gain new insights into this process. And part of that is going to require you teaching the rest of the class this stuff. Um, so that's the exciting interactive component to this lecture, which is forthcoming, okay? So let's just pay close attention to this first vikalpa. It's called the Sankhya vikalpa. I'm just going to call it that. Now, Sankhya says, axiomatically, there is always a difference between you, the seer, and that which you see. And that's already known to you because that's already the premise upon which you build your life. So you already know that you're different from the world around you and therefore you live your life accordingly by seeking things beyond the body to acquire and pushing things beyond the body away that you don't like, right? So that's what gives you the sense of being here and the world being there. Now, in deep meditation, you're able to intuit that it's not just the world that's out there, it's also the body that's out there. Because from the point of view of the aham, the I-ness, the individual cognizer, the body is as much an idam an object as the world is an object. For what is the body, as we often say, but a series of sensations perceived from moment to moment by this aham, this me, this I, this subject, you see. So therefore, the Sankhyans will say, you are by that logic, not the body. You are no more the body than you are the world around you. And this is something you must intuit, of course, in meditation. So this vikalpa, guides you to a meditative experience, which is where you sit, close your eyes, feel your own innate subjectivity, which is a clumsy way of saying it, as if to imply that it's an object that can be felt, but just go with it. Feel your way into your own subjectivity and then recognize that, oh, by the way, from Kashmir Shaivism, that's not clumsy because there's a self-reflexive ability, okay? But from Sankhyan point of view, just to clarify. Don't worry, I'm a Kashmir Shaiva. I, I obviously know that there's Vimarsha, okay? Don't worry. But from a, from a Sankhyan point of view, the subject cannot be made an object, but just for fun, you feel intuitively that the body is an idam, an object appearing to you, the aham, the subject. So you push the body away. Then the mind. So you say, okay, I'm not the body. At least I can say I am the mind. Ah, but you're not that either. So having pushed away the stula sharira, the physical body, next you push away the sukshma sharira, the subtle body. You say, just as the sensations appeared to me as an idam, as a series of idams, thisnesses, um, so too do thoughts, emotions, dreams, subtle sensations, memories, so too do, do those appear as idams. Right? So too do they appear as the this. So in meditation, after a while, there's a possibility that you become unstuck from the matrix of body and mind. Okay, this you know, this is Sankhya, it's fairly basic. So I'm just gonna keep going. But there's one more layer that Sankhya invites you to become unstuck from. And that is the absence of all sensation and thought known as the Karana Sharira, the causal body or the void body. Now, if you identify with the void body, you're going to say something like no self, Anatman, right? You're gonna say that the ultimate reality is no self. Why? Because you're identifying with the lack of content. You've thereby intuited the absence of content, but failed to distinguish yourself from that as the perceiver of that. So that's a particularly subtle point. You are not the absence of experience. You are the one to whom absence of experience is experience. 
And that final aham, Sankhya calls Purusha. So this Purusha, again, a vikalpa, a word, a label, refers to that wordless experience of being something other than the body, mind, and even void. Right? So this is what the Sankhyans call Purusha, this chit. And it is not all of this stuff, right? It's not even this. If you think you're this, then you get stuck with that like Theravadin Buddhist notion that you are Anatman. No, you're not even, you're not even not you. You're the you that realize that you're not you, like that, right? So this chit is what Sankhya calls Purusha. Okay, so Sankhya is going to interact with this model in that way. Now, Sankhya, as you know, is a pluralistic system. Okay, so that means every individual is a Purusha unto themselves. And, and so that means in this room, there are what? 44 Purushas in this room, 43 or 44 Purushas, right? There are 44 different people, all of us experiencing mind-body world. So you're supposed to feel this in meditation, led to the experience by the Vikalpa. So the teaching was uh, uh, a bridge, a bridge that you crossed, and now you're resting on the other shore of your Sankhyan realization, recognizing that I am not the body that gets old, that gets sick, that dies. I am not the mind that is happy or sorrow. I'm not even the, I'm not the mind that is, uh, I'm not the prana that comes up and down, and I'm not even the void. I'm not even the absence. I'm that which observes it all. Okay. Now, Advaita Vedanta comes in and offers a new vikalpa, a vikalpa that overwrites the previous vikalpa and opens you to an even deeper, more intimate experience of reality. So notice, it's not that Advaita Vedanta is saying the Sankhya philosophers are wrong, right? They're just saying that they didn't go far enough. Their, their insight was not deep enough. It gave you some glimpse into reality, but now we're going to go even further by suggesting that there are no plurality of purushas and nor is there even a world that exists apart from the purusha. There is only one principle, only one purusha, and we're going to call that Brahman. So how do we get there? Very simple. The vikalpa is this. For purushas to be different, they require differentiation, right? But the only way you can differentiate one from another is if it has a form, is if it exists in time, is if it has a spatial coordinate. But purusha is beyond time. It's beyond space and it's formless. So how then can you point to a distinction between one purusha and another? You see, if I had a mass of formless water, how can I point to one part of the water and distinguish it from another part of the water? That would be as silly as looking up at a cloudless blue sky and saying that part is different from that part. No, the sky is a continuous luminous void. So too is the ocean a continuous mass of water. Similarly, Purusha is a continuous mass of pure consciousness and therefore we are all literally one. You see, so notice that this is an even more intimate experience of reality because it blurs the distinction between one purusha and another, allowing you to experience wordlessly your oneness with all beings, with not only humans, but all other sentient beings, right? That's wonderful. Look, we leveled up. We went from one vikalpa to a slightly better vikalpa. And so you didn't throw away the previous vikalpa any more than you throw away the rung of the ladder that you just transcended. So watch, we're putting one hand on a rung and then we're reaching for the second rung. But if you don't have a firm grasp on the first rung, you're not going to be able to catch the second rung. So you must get the Sankhya rung before you can get the Vedanta rung. 
And now we're going to climb to dizzying heights. We're going to go beyond Vedanta. I recently had a debate with Swami Sarpanandaji and uh, I, I said this, he didn't enjoy it very much because he had said in his lecture at that retreat, Emily was there. He had said, in this, he had said Emily's name, but he had said also, aside from that, in this retreat, that where Descartes stopped, Advaita Vedanta continued. And then I jokingly said on the panel one day, where Advaita Vedanta stops, Kashmir Shaivism continues <laughs> at risk of being sectarian. But then we all had a beautiful conversation about why Nagarjuna and Advaita Vedanta, they, they avoid sectarianness. Okay. So anyway, um, this is important to say. To even do Kashmir Shaivism, to even get to this lofty height, I would say, of philosophical vikalpa, you need to really get your, yeah, right, I think so. You really need to get, get your footing right. So notice, once you have the Sankhya vikalpa, you transcend it to a wordless experience, but then you have a new vikalpa to help you go to another wordless experience, which is the oneness of all sentience. And not only that, the feeling of being one with also the world. Which, which, by the way, is not really available in Advaita because the Vikalpa here is trying to dissolve the world, showing it to be an appearance. So it's not this embodied realization, rather it's a transcendental realization. At least that's my poor and clumsy way of describing the feeling state of the Advaitic, or I would say the Vedantic realization. Okay, So here's how you do it. I've already demonstrated briefly how you can show that every Purusha is really one Purusha. The next thing is to show through another Vikalpa that the world cannot exist apart from the conscious perceiver. So there is no color blue apart from the perception of blue as Nagarjuna famously articulated. Or no, before Nagarjuna even. But like, as the Buddhist philosophers argue, argued, as the Advaitic Vedantic philosophers argued, there's no world apart from your perception of it. And there's no perception apart from mind. And there's no mind apart from consciousness. So therefore, mind, perception, and the world perceived are all appearances within consciousness. Consciousness alone is, and there is no second. There is no other. There is no prakriti. Okay, done. So you know this. Many of you are very acquainted with Advaita Vedanta. So you're all like, okay, say something new. Here's the new Vikalpa. So we're done with that, okay? Now we go to the next rung of the ladder. Now, as you know, and, and by the way, some of this is review from our first few classes in this Kashmir Shaivism series. I think you might recall the lecture, Progressive Stages of Realization in Kashmir Shaivism, one of the first lectures in this series. I'm basically reviewing that, how you take Sankhya and then transcend it to Advaita Vedanta. And now you're going to transcend Advaita Vedanta to the next level. So what Kashmir Shaivism argues is this. One, it says... Advaita Vedanta seems to be sneaking in Sankhya. It's just changed the name from Prakriti to Maya. Although Prakriti is subsumed into Maya, Maya in Advaita Vedanta ends up becoming something like a second principle. And the very language is like that. Maya is an endless, sorry, not endless, that would be disastrous, a beginningless category that is different from Brahman. Right? And we looked at a bunch of arguments from Abhinava Gupta showing how this is a sneaky form of duality. Maya is not something when it's convenient for it not to be, but it is something when you need an explanation for why all of this appears. So uh, Shankara famously calls it avidya cha nirvachya. It's undefinable. It is and it isn't. It's inscrutable, which seems like a very interesting philosophical um, skirt, right? <laughs> uh, a, a, a reluctance to actually come to terms with the appearance and therefore shoving it under the carpet. That's what it's called, avidya cha nirvacha. Okay, so this is the sneaky duality, arguably, of Advaita Vedanta that the Kashmir Shaiva philosophers are objecting to. But another problem is this. Sankhya is limited in that it doesn't have absolute non-duality. So the freedom that you get from Sankhya, from the vikalpa of Sankhya, is not the absolute freedom. 
Why not? Because for it to be an absolute freedom requires limitlessness. But in Sankhya, you're rather limited. You're limited by the fact that you're not Prakriti and you're limited by the fact that you're not other Purushas. So though you are transcendent to your body-mind world, you are still limited by being only you, right? Advaita Vedanta transcends that by saying, no, 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 you are everyone. Everyone is you, there's only one. So you transcend that limitation. And you also transcend the limitation of not being the world by dissolving the world, right? Isn't that beautiful? So you get this, this sense. Um, and, and no, here's the problem. So Kiam is now falling into the other category. Remember how we said there are people who suddenly argue that philosophy is not a way to liberation? As if, look at what, what that comment is saying. It's saying that liberation and philosophy are different. Do you see? That's the exact problem I'm pointing to, Kiam. This whole lecture is targeting that. I'm going to argue, hopefully by the end of all of this, that philosophy is not other than liberation. It's if used properly, if understood properly, a proper means to liberation. It's a sadhana. So there are so many people who would say intellectualizing is beside the point. It's the shastra jala, the net of scripture, so to speak. And so some philosophers in focusing on liberation sacrificed on philosophy. Kashmir Shaivas laugh at that. They say, no, no, no. How can you? Already there's a duality there. What kind of a non-dualist are you that sees a distinction between intellect and pure consciousness, right? So intellect is a function of pure consciousness. It can either be used to conceal pure consciousness or reveal pure consciousness. Therefore, Shankara spent his entire life debating, philosophizing, systematizing. Ramanuja, Madhavacharya, they spent their entire life articulating systems of philosophy. Systems of philosophy that changed India and liberated many, not because um, of anything other than this intellectual work, arguably, I would argue. Because the intellectual work, as we're going to see today, is an expression of the awakened consciousness, not a thing apart from it. See? Do you see, gang? Do you see the importance of this discussion and the difficulty of what I'm going to try to propose? The Kashmir Shaiva is going to say something like this. Now, let's continue. So, um, uh, Sankhya's philosophy, which is a fully fleshed out system, a beautiful system. They did their best, right? They were really interested in systematizing. They did their best. But this was the limit of that Vikalpa. Then Advaita Vedanta, a fully fleshed out system. It subsumes much of Sankhya and builds upon it and dialogues against other schools, particularly against Buddhism, and creates a system. Okay, Shankara in particular. Gaurapada started it. And what Gaurapada started, Shankara maybe touched down on, right? And Anandagiri and others. And you could say all the Shankaras throughout the lineage have somehow contributed. Vidya Swami like that, everybody. Okay, so we have this fully fleshed out, ironed out system of philosophy called Advaita Vedanta. And it is powerful. If you use the Vikalpa of Advaita Vedanta, you can exit out the window to a wonderful lawn. But we say it's still a lawn. It's not yet the open field of total enlightenment. Do you know why? Because the Vikalpa of Advaita Vedanta leads you to an intimate experience of a Brahman that is passive, inert, inactive. Because Brahman is nirvishesha, nirguna only. It cannot be dynamic. It cannot create. It cannot play. The world is not other than it, but the world is not. So there's no world in which for it to play like that. So there's a problem here insofar as this Vikalpa only takes you so far. It would be great if this is all that was, right? If this is the furthest you could go. But the Kashmir Shaiva masters say, no, no, not so fast. There's one more understanding. And that's the one we're going to come to now. And it's this. Awareness, which is the non-dual principle of, and by the way, I hope that we're clear that this awareness is not some philosophical abstract notion. Okay, it's you. Right From the Sankhya um, discussion we just had, we're talking about you, the most you that you could be. Now, let's say something about you. 
something about you, the awareness. Are you like the Advaita Vedantin would suggest, just a witness, just this formless, impersonal principle? Or are you a person? Now, Kashmir Shaivism is theistic monism. So it's going to say it's not a principle, it's a person. And here's why it's a person. It's a person because for you to have personhood, it's not necessary that you have a body. Okay, it's not necessary that you be blue or forearmed or something. Okay, it's not necessary even that you have a personality. So you don't even need to be Saguna Brahman. You can be Nirguna Brahman to be technical and still be a person. Why? Because personhood, Kashmir Shaivism is going to argue, here's a Vikalpa. If you understand this Vikalpa, it will lead you to a different type of realization, right? And here's the Vikalpa. Personhood only requires self-reflexive awareness. A person is a person insofar as that they are aware and that they are aware of being aware. Okay. This is how, gang, this is so beautiful. This is how you derive the person from the principle. Advaita Vedanta leaves you with the principle. Existence, consciousness, bliss. Impersonal, formless, right? Kashmir Shaivism says that formless Nirguna Brahman is actually a person. It's not a principle, it's a person. Why is it a person? Because it's self-reflexively aware. How could that be? Well, we would say, Svat Prakasha, which is a term from Vedanta, means consciousness is self-luminous. It illumines, and in illumining, it becomes self-effulgent. So like a light. A light shines and illumines objects. So awareness shines and illumines the totality of my experience, body, mind, etc. Okay? However, the very existence of the light does not require a second light to make the first light known. The very existence of the light is self-luminous. Similarly, awareness is self-luminous in the sense that it's self-aware. Not only are you aware of things, but you're aware of being aware. So notice, now the subject has an innate kind of like doubling back on itself, uh, kind of objectifying itself in a sense, a reflecting itself, if you will. So now we introduce the category Vimarsha. This is where we extend from Advaita Vedanta. Advaita Vedanta is prakasha. Consciousness illumines. It's a principle and it illumines. Uh, Kashmir Shaivism says it's a person because not only does it illumine, it also is self-reflexively aware. Vimarsha. So prakasha plus vimarsha. Okay, now we get into the linguistic mysticism. What is language? Right? So... I hope you're on the edge of your seat because this is where we really come in for the lecture, okay? This is all preamble. Here we go. What is language? What exactly is the purpose of language? We would say two things. These two principles are, are, are foundational for our linguistic missing. The first, language presupposes awareness. Fairly quotidian point. You can only speak about things that you're aware of, right? Even if you're aware of something you've never perceived, you can speak about it because you're still aware of it. Or you can still speak about something you don't know anything about because you're aware that you don't know anything about it. However, not really. Like you can really only speak with authority about things that you have directly perceived. That's why if someone wants to tell you about spirituality, they better have the experience behind the words that they're using. In other words, you are not going to be moved or taught by anybody who has not experienced the reality of what they're talking about. So that's, that's the difference between like a spiritual teacher who has authority versus a pandit, a person who just, you know, is in, intellectually gifted, but is not aflame with awakened consciousness, to use a phrase, right? So you have to be aware of it in order to speak of it. So awareness is the foundation upon which language is premised. Language presupposes awareness. So that's fair, right? So far, so good. The second principle is, pardon the pun, revelatory. Awareness presupposes language and language's function is to reveal. So language 
reveals unto the listener something new, right? Language is a revelatory device. But didn't we just say awareness has vimarsha? Vimarsha is awareness relishing itself, or rather revealing itself to itself. Vimarsha is a revealing function within awareness. When awareness becomes aware of being aware, arguably it always is aware, but from moment to moment it can forget. Why? Because of avidya maya or ashuddha vikalpa. When it suddenly rediscovers itself, which we call pratyabhikya, recognition. When it suddenly rediscovers itself. I, I said that twice. <laughs> I feel like that was a poetic device. I, but when it rediscovers itself, that's revelation. Turiya, we call it. Turiya here is used in a special context. In, in Kashmir Shaivism, Turiya doesn't refer to a deep samadhi state, nor does it refer to the fourth beyond waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. It just refers to any time awareness is aware of itself, either in between thoughts or in between breaths or during some peak experience or even during deep meditation, samadhi absorption experience, whatever. Anytime awareness is aware of itself, that's called Turiya or self-revelation. Vimarsha. Didn't we say language A presupposes awareness and B is a revelatory function of awareness? If that's true, then Vimarsha is none other than language. For Vimarsha, the function of awareness to reveal itself to itself is a kind of dialogue, a kind of discourse, a kind of speech. It's Vach! Do you see? This is the realization. This is the deep realization that if Vach, speech, is about awareness. It's a function of awareness. It exists within awareness, presupposes awareness. And if it's a function of revelation unto the listener through speech, then speech is none other than Vimarsha. So you have Prakasha, Shiva. Then you have Shakti, Vimarsha. Shiva and Shakti. And look at the kind of poetics of it. In the tantras, every tantra, most tantras, are a dialogue between Shiva and Shakti. And by tantra, I mean like Shaiva tantras. Of course, Buddhist tantras can be different. But in Shaiva tantras, it's always a discussion between Shiva and Shakti. So speech is a very important part of that dialogue. Even in the Upanishads, right? It's about verbal transmission between teacher and student. Yagnavalkya and Maitreyi or King Janaka and, and Yagnavalkya or something like that. You know, you have these dialogues between two individuals. Similarly, in the Tantra, there's a discourse happening. There, there's something to that. That speech, that revelation between Shiva and Shakti is actually the very metaphysical claim of Kashmir Shaivism that awareness is self-aware. So if awareness is self-aware, that self-revelation can rightly be called vach. And indeed it is. The name that we give to Shakti in the Trika is para vach, the supreme word. Right? Isn't this so cool? I can see Bhaskar smiling because now you have the key to the gospel of John. Now we understand what it means for God to be the word. But why with God and then was God? Because some duality is first cognized only to be reconciled. So the word is what God speaks to reveal. To reveal what? To reveal himself unto himself. So that it seems to be different. It seems to be a function other than him until you realize it's a function innate to him. Therefore, you have these two movements. The word was with God. The word was God. Bam. Isn't that so cool? And it's, it's premised upon this simple idea that speech is nothing but a function of awareness that reveals. And since Vimarsha is a function of awareness that reveals, Vimarsha slash Shakti is Paravach. Okay, so uh, Kiam, I hope I've rescued language. Don't say philosophy, because all philosophizing is based on language, right? Speech, right? And if you say speech is something other than liberation, you've committed the fallacy of saying wordlessness can't be contained in words. Ah, sounds like a duality to me. There's no Advaita there, as if words and wordlessness are different, right? Um, para vach, 
in in the Q and A, let's um yeah okay, Rory. Now you're gonna hear the the reason behind that, right? So we know we all know that words have power, but but why why what gives the words power? Let's get into it. Let's get deeper. So now let's go further. Okay, the the thing about Padavaj is that there are four levels to its being. So here's the next vikalpa to offer you. There are four levels of Padavaj. Padavaj being the 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 highest most refined most expanded version the shakti par excellence shakti slash vimarsha slash paravaj but now it manifests on three levels of reality all these are real but some the 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 levels of reality differ in terms of density grossness tangibility so now we're going to get into what rory is saying in the chat the differences between power and by power i mean revelatory power and there are two powers, as we said earlier. There's the shuddha vikalpa, the power to reveal unto yourself the wordless wonder of your being, and then there's the ashuddha vikalpa, the power to conceal from yourself the um, wordless wonder of your own being. Both of them are your powers; they're your shaktis. At any given time, you have a choice. You can use your language to take you further from the truth, or you can use your language to take you closer to the truth. These are truly clumsy statements because you are the truth. And in truth, you can't go further or closer. It's not like that, as if this is a journey in space. But you can be distanced from your own truth by ignorance. And that ignorance is a self-perpetuated game of hide and seek through your misuse or intentional misuse, playful misuse of language. Okay, so now let's, we're now using language correctly because now you'll see that this vikalpa points beyond itself to a wordless experience. Now, Paravach, there are four levels of its expression. I wanted to make a graphic for you, and I didn't. So sorry, not sorry. But if I did make a graphic, it would be like four levels, and each one would have a name. Paravach being at the bottom. So I would have put Paravach at the very bottom, and I would have tried to find, I don't know how I would do it on Canva, but I would have tried to show that Paravach is not actually the fourth layer. It's rather, um, let's say, a resultant, I don't, how do I say it? It's like a layer that's present in the other three, okay? So it's not a discrete fourth apart from the three. Like the Turiya of Gaudapada, it inheres in the three that I'm now going to describe. So the grossest, densest, I'm just going to start with the most obvious, the most tangible, and the one that we are most familiar with. The grossest, obvious expression of Paravach is called Vaikari. Vaikari means spoken word from the Sanskrit Vikara. Vikara in Sanskrit means dense, gross, physical. Vaikari then refers to the language that we typically use when we transact with one another and the world. Just spoken word. And notice, spoken word is dualistic. Now, those who dislike language are responding to this level only, I would argue. The Vaikari level. And they're right to, 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 to have find fault with this. Why? Because language is inherently dualistic, but only Vaikari. What is vaikari? It's the spoken word. And necessarily the spoken word distinguishes a shabda, artha, and sambhanda. Or shabda, artha, jnana. So now I'm using language from Patanjali, but before that from Batrahari, before that even from the Vedas. This distinction between shabda, sound, or word, artha, meaning, and jnana, knowledge. So the word has a meaning, and through the meaning of the word, you get knowledge of the thing. So these three things are distinct when it comes to words. Also, spoken word is like necessarily temporal, right? There's something about language that creates time. Haven't you noticed? Language is temporal in that it superimposes time onto things, mostly because language um, implies cause and effect. 
And I don't really want to get into it. I'm just going to leave this statement here un- undersubstantiated. But there's something about language that is temporal, that is causal, and spatial. There's something othering about language. It seems like language cuts things up, analyzes things, labels things, and excludes things, right? Do you, does this resonate with you? This is what people are responding to when they're critical about language. But this is only one level of language, the coarsest, densest, grossest form of language. Um, and it has its place too. What is its place? Its place is basically matrification. And I think that's a, that's a word I want to put in the chat. It's a pretty important word, matrification. So this is an English word, matrix. <laughs> Fans of the movie will be excited. Hold on, let me just, this is, a, this is an English word, right? Matrix. But actually it comes from, there's obviously similar words in Sanskrit and English for reasons we don't get into. But it comes from the Sanskrit word matika, which both means matrix, but esoterically means mother. So matar means mother. So matrika means little mother. So in the linguistic mysticism of trika, each akshara or varna, each phoneme, phoneme means like sound or letter, basically the alphabet, right? Each phoneme in the Sanskrit language is a matrika, a mother. Why is it a matrika? Why is it a mother? Because it gives birth to time, space, and causality, because it matrifies. So the only way I'm able to have an experience of the world is through nama, rupa, vivahara, through name, form, and function, through labels. That's wonderful. It's wonderful that I have the heroic power to use words to create experiences of time, space, causality. You know what? The fool who feels bound by time, space, and causality hates words. The fool, I will say it, the fool who transcended time, space, and causality now delights in that very thing because they can play with time space causality. Now it's no longer my prison, it's my Lego bricks, baby, right? What's what's a prison for you is my Lego tower. And I can play with it having transcended it. So let's transcend it, let's go to the next level. So from Vaikari, we go to Madhyama. So there's one point I wanna make first about Vaikari before we transcend it. And that is obviously it's dualistic. So the, the dominant experience of language on this level is Bedha. Bhedha means duality. And of course, krama. Krama means sequence. Despite also being the name of the school of philosophy that we typically talk about here, krama literally means sequence. So language sequencifies. Is that a word? It creates sequences because it's natu- naturally temporal. Okay. So it's it's krama, it's bhedha, and for the most part, it's kind of binding. It kind of obscures for the most part, at least like the way most of us use language. It's typically not so skillful. Mm. So you're right to be critical of this language. But now let's go further. Vaikari is transcended by an even subtler layer called Madhyama. So Madhyama, Madhya means middle. So Madhyama means middle speech. So not, I mean, in Sanskrit, you have the Pratyama, Madhyama, Uttama, you know? The, the, it's, the first person is when you're referring to what the English calls is a third person. So Sanskrit first person is the English third person. They, them, he, she, it, right? That's Pratyama. Then you have in Sanskrit the Madhyama, the middle person, which is when there are two people, you and me, you. So you is the middle person. And you have the Uttama, the final person, right? Tejas, you should know this. Tejas is learning Sanskrit now. You have the Uttama, final person, which is uh, me, the I subject, right? So this is not to be confused with that. But it's a little bit like that. But I just, I just want to point that I'm talking about something else now, okay? So Madhyama refers to the mentalese that we experience subtler than thoughts. So there are thoughts, sorry, subtler than words. So there are words, but there's also the thought behind the word, which can be a mixture of words and images. 
So in the mind, the language of the mind is less dense, less fixed, less temporal, but still somewhat dense, still somewhat fixed, still somewhat temporal. So the mind still thinks in language, but that language is subtler and it's also kind of imagistic. Okay, so here on the Madhyama level, this is the realm of thoughts. So Shravana, needless to say, the Shravana process of listening to a spiritual teaching typically starts first as a Vaikari, Vaikari experience. So you have to literally hear the words that the teacher is saying, and you have to understand the literal meaning of the words used. And then you go from there into your mental experience of those same words. So here is where, you know, you negotiate the meaning of the Vaikari expression against various other, maybe less tangible meanings in the mind. So this is what we call manana, contemplation or um, thinking. This is where we think about what we heard. So this realm is bheda bheda, bheda bheda, because it's not wholly dual. It's not wholly differentiated, like in the case of spoken language, but it is somewhat differentiated. It's not wholly non-dual, like the next level we're going to discuss, but it's still somewhat cohesive because all these words are tied together by the mind in which they come in, come and go, right? So there's some cohesion to these. And, and that cohesion is your own subjective mentalizing, right? So this is bedha bedha. It's both dual and non-dual at once. There's also a, a sense in which it's krama akrama. It's both sequential and non-sequential. It truly is a middle state, a middle ground. And very little can be said about it because it's so in between, right? And obviously, obviously, because look, my ability to describe to you this next level is horrifically hamstrung because I'm trying to show a level subtler than what words can do on the Vaikari level. So you just have to intuit where I'm going and where I'm going next is even subtler. So subtler than the Madhyama is what is called the Pashanti. Pashanti literally in Sanskrit means the beholder or the seer. Now, this is the realm of pure subjectivity where you are more um, aware of your I-ness than you are of the thisness, but the thisness is faintly there. Okay. So now Westerfer is asking, how is it not wholly dualistic? Yes. So this next point I want to make goes back to the first point we, we made. And that is that every one of my experiences is mediated between aham and idam, okay? The more I become absorbed in idam, the greater duality I experience because there are many thises, but only one me. Aham is singular, idam is many. So vaikari, there's the greatest duality there because it's the greatest experience of idam. It's an absorption into idam. In other words, vaikari, it's most experience regarding vastu, stuff. Right? So like this is what basically Vaikari talks about, bodies and stuff. Do you see? So this is the most dual because it's the most pluralistic. There's so many things in the world and the body is so many sensations, but the mind feels like there's one. It feels like there's one mind perceiving a world of plurality. Right? By the way, do you see these boxes that I'm drawing or is it only just me that sees them? You see the boxes? Okay, good. So I hope that answers the question, Westerford. This idam is way more dual than this idam. Because this idam is closer to this aham. Do you see? So notice I'm basically setting up a spectrum of aham and idam and saying that the closer I come to aham, the more non-dual my experience becomes. Do you see? So mind is in between. Mind is like the connector between me and this. The mind is the link between the subjective perceiver and the object perceived because it's in the mind that the subject and object are mutually adapted. So the mind is that bridge. It's the knower, knowing 
it's the manas, mater, manas, prameyam. So that, that knowing, okay. So, okay, mind. Okay, good. Now let's continue. If I go deeper, I can enter into, and by the way, these are all meditative experiences. I'm talking about absorption into Iness. So when I absorb into Iness, I become somewhat, at least in meditation, less cognizant of the thisness of the world denoted by Vaikari Vach and the thisness even of the mind denoted by Madhyama. I've now entered what is called Pashanti, the realm of the subjective perceiver. However, thisness remains faintly. There's a faint kind of thisness there, a faint sort of objectification at the very least of myself. There's a kind of, so this is what we call a non-dual experience, but it's not wholly non-dual either. Now this Pashanti is actually beyond words. It's actually beyond thoughts. This I sense, this basic sense of my being is wordless in the sense that it's subtler than words. It's also thoughtless in the sense that it's prior to all concepts. This is what is typically talked about as Purusha or um, Atman, but actually Atman is one step more. And that is this Paravach. So the fourth level, fourth, goes even beyond Pashanti and enters into the pure non-dual absolute, which we said is none other than Shiva Shakti. Okay, so that one is actually wholly present in all the three levels uh, aforementioned. So it's there when I'm in pure subjectivity, right? I'm aware that I'm aware. It's there when I'm in half subjectivity, half objectivity. I'm aware of my thoughts and the images and all that in my head. And I, uh, it's there also when I'm aware of the most dualistic mode of perception, words and bodies and, and, and the world, right? So this Paravak is both transcendent and imminent. It's transcendent because it's beyond even Pashanti, being subtler than even the knower. But it's imminent in that it's there wholly in each of the three levels of the word. Okay, so now having established that. So we have this infrastructure now, okay? The four levels of the word. Now we can get into the real meat of the, I mean, this is the meat of the, the, the class. This is the, the content. But using this vikalpa, we're now going to answer the question, can you become enlightened from YouTube videos or from lectures or from words? Yes, absolutely yes. But for, the, for them to have an effect, they must reach the Pashanti level and they must have come first from the Paravak level. So let me explain that a little bit. You must receive the words from a person who is inspired. In other words, that person must be speaking from their realization, which is a fancy way of saying consciousness itself speaks through the guise of an enlightened master. So this is the idea, and, and you'll see it in the Malini Vijayotaro Tantra. There's something about awakening to pure awareness that seems to make certain individuals very wordy. The Buddha did not sit quietly upon attaining realization. He spent the rest of his life talking his ass off, right? He said so much. He gave lecture after lecture after lecture. Though he refused to say anything affirmative about the truth, he was more than happy to like, talk about what was not the truth. And he was, you know, you'll see in these, the, the Tripitaka, voluminous account of what the Buddha said. He would say, monks. And then he would address them and say something. And he would say, the Tathagata said this. Like there's so, and, and, and the whole tradition is, I have heard. Thus have I heard, you know? So people are saying things to each other. Why? Because it's the nature of awareness to speak, to express, just like it's the nature of the flower when blooming to emit fragrance. 
This is very important. It's the nature of the bee to buzz um, when it sucks its honey. After When it sucks, it's quiet. But after having sucked, it buzzes a little bit because it's drunk on the honey, right? So it's kind of natural. When you when A drunkard loves to talk and he talks loudly and boisterously. Those who are drunk on the honey wine of awakened consciousness cannot for the life of them keep quiet because the internal silence demands external expression. So this is one account for why those highest masters have always been um, rather wordy. But that's not always true, right? There, there are people who, after the enlightenment, become incredibly silent, like Ramana Maharshi. Incredibly. And, and if they speak, they, they speak very little. True. Kashmir Shaivism, maybe a little pejoratively, would say, and not about Sri Ramana Maharshi. You know, he used to draw Sri Antras and stuff, and he commented on like tantric texts like Tripura, Rahasya, and all that. So he he he's a Southern Indian Advaita Vedanta master. But in the South, we have Tripura, Sundari. You know, I don't want to get into it. But but anyway, there are conceivably people who become realized and become silent. We say they're not realized enough. In other words, they haven't touched down onto Shakti. They've discovered Shiva, but they haven't gone further. This is the difference between Prasangika, Madhyamika, and Shentong. Shentong says Prasangika, Madhyamika have come very far, but they haven't gone one step further. And they're not wrong. Any more than Sankhya or Vedanta is wrong. Any more than the rung of the ladder is wrong after having transcended it. No, no, no. If you go further, you discover the potency, the power of awareness. And that power expresses itself as words. So an, an awakened master, at least according to the Malini Vijayotaro Tantra, should um, be able to articulate from that place of being. So when they speak, they don't speak from duality, right? So their language is a little deeper than just the world of plurality, nor do they speak from mind. You know, once I remember I picked up a Yoga Sutra uh, commentary from a library and it was, a, by a, it was by a pandit, not a yogi. And I, I read it. And I remember thinking, this is the most obfuscated, confusing, hair splitting thing I've ever read in my life. You know, and then I read commentaries and I was very young at this time. And then I compared that with commentaries from yogis, masters. And I realized there was a simplicity and clarity to the way a yogi spoke about these truths, as opposed to the way a pandit spoke about these truths. What was the difference? Why is it that the yogi had a clarity that the pandit didn't? Arguably because the pandit was speaking only from the intellect. He was speaking of things that he had no direct experience of. So obviously it's wordy and confounding and conflated and obfuscated, right? But the yogi was speaking from awakened consciousness. Therefore, there was a clarity and a power to the yogi's language, okay? So that's the difference. So a person who is fully awake will be able to spew vikalpas, right? Because those vikalpas, uh, by the way, sorry, they'll be able to spew shuddha vikalpas because those vikalpas are rooted in their awakened consciousness. So they're speaking from the place of highest non-duality. So naturally, you can say, you can say the further a teacher has gone, the more powerful their words are and the further you can go through those words. And Amanda is right. Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa spoke almost all throughout his throat cancer. Now, if you look at his words, they're very powerful in that they transcend Sankhya and they transcend Advaita Vedanta. They come a little closer to what we're saying here. You know, at least my argument is that his, his teaching is very Kashmir Shaiva. He, he says, Brahma or Shakti Abhed. What you call Brahman, I call Kali. Brahman and Shakti are non-different. Like a snake is still and wriggling, but still one snake. So too does awareness both have a passive and dynamic aspect which is a claim that you won't get in Advaita Vedanta. So notice he, he's speaking from that place, right? So that's why. Anyway, 
So this is one component for lectures to work, for YouTube lectures to work. Um, ideally, you're hearing them. Ideally, from a person who's awakened to the reality of those words. Right? And I think that's why Swami Sarvapur and the G videos are so powerful. A lot of people have had a glimpse of their inner state. And many people are talking about non-duality on the internet. But not everyone is talking about them the way Sami Savapinandaji is talking about them. Arguably, the difference is in realization. Right? So that's, that's very important. That's one component. To what extent is that teaching coming from a place of realization? But it's only one of two. Now, the second component. So in ans answering this question, can you become enlightened from a YouTube video? Yes, but you must be listening to someone who is themselves fully awakened for it to work. That's one. But not enough. It's necessary, but not sufficient. The next thing we need is for you to take that teaching and integrate it all the way down to the level of awakened awareness from which it came in the first place. <laughs> so here's how you do that. So now I'm going to give a, a practice, a practice that way maybe we can kind of leave this lecture with. So here's how you integrate, how you do what is called manana and nididhyasana. Okay. So the first thing is you have to check that you really understand the teaching on the level of the vaikari spoken word. So you have to be able to recall what the person said. You have to understand the meaning of the words. And you have to just like, like basically have a working understanding of the teaching. That's vaikari, right? That's, that's the first level um, upon which you work with the teaching, vaikari. Just literal words. What were the words and what did they mean? Then you go to madhyama. Now here, you entertain doubts. Here, where, here is where I argue the cognitive dissonance can come. So you heard certain words and they might resonate. They might ring with a certain truth because they're coming from a very deep place. But the mind maybe doesn't know that yet. So the mind might have to struggle with that concept a bit. So I was told that I was the supreme par excellence truth. But I don't feel that way. I feel like a limited individual burdened by my habits and patterns and addictions, etc. So how could I be Brahman like that? So this is part, part of the work that we have to do is dealing with this cognitive dissonance. Now, I'll maybe, I'll maybe say this next week. I'll save this for next week. But it's enough to say that thoughts are not existing in a vacuum. There's no such thing as an, Im, as an is it impassionate or unpassionate? Dispassionate. There's no such thing as a dispassionate intellectual. There's a sense that intellectuals, you know, they're just so abstracted and thoughtful. No, those thoughts behind them is a powerful current of emotion, right? Thoughts are premised on emotion. Emotion is an energetic experience in the body, in the in the in the energy body. I mean, emotion is power, right? Emotions are um, can be overwhelming. They can be ennobling. Thoughts are emotions. So I hope you don't think that philosophizing is just abstract thinking. There's great emotion behind it. That's why Shankara, Ramanuja, Madhava, they were such great devotees. You have to have such an emotional force to be able to do what they did. To be a philosopher, to be a real philosopher, requires that you're connected to your heart because thoughts are emotions and emotions are thoughts. There's no distinction between them. So thoughts are energetic things. So when you receive something on the level of bhaikari, when it gets to the level of madhyama, now you're dealing with that emotional force of what you heard, the energetics of what you heard. And this can sometimes be violent. Take the case of Miss Dutcher at the Inspired, you know, in Inspired Talk, Swami Vivekananda is giving so many Shuddhavikalpas. And foremost amongst them is this idea that duty is disdainful. 
It's detestable. Duty is the word that we use to put roses on our bullshit. It's the way that we perfume our garbage. It's our attachment, our human weaknesses clothed in the guise of nobility. So he says, duty is nothing but the morbid attraction for flesh to flesh, right? Duty is the scorching midday sun. Now there was a woman there, the host of this retreat who, you know, she had Protestant values. So she was really like, invested in the idea of duty being the purpose of a decent life. When she heard this from her teacher, Vivekananda, she got ill. She got physically ill because of the cognitive dissonance caused between the inspired talks of Swamiji and her own ideas of what life was. So this is where the magic happens, I would say, where you wrestle with the emotive force of the teaching against the emotive force of other contrary teachings. Here is where the Sat Paksha, the right view, contends with Purva Paksha's wrong views. Okay, so I recently spoke to a gentleman, and this I think will be of some value to you, how to work with these, um, these, these vikalpas. I spoke to a gentleman who expressed that he, you know, he felt very untrustworthy. He felt like the people in his life didn't really trust him and that he, he was a shifty figure like that, you know. Um, and he's a very sincere, beautiful gentleman. That he would think this is tragic. But of course, we all have these limiting beliefs about ourselves inherited from our childhood, right? So he had this limiting belief. Now, to counter this Ashuddha Vikalpa, he couldn't do it with another Ashuddha Vikalpa. So he couldn't just say, I am trustworthy, right? So remember, his, his Vikalpa was, I am untrustworthy. And if he's looking for experiences in the world to disprove that, he's never going to find it because his filtering mechanism will only filter for more of the same. He's got the confirmation bias. I'm trust. I'm untrustworthy will always give him data that confirms that bias. <laughs> okay. So he needed to get rid of this. And, and so he couldn't do it by saying, I'm, un I'm, I'm trustworthy because I'm trustworthy and I'm untrustworthy are both just on the level of Haikarivak. They're both Ashuddha Vikalpas mired in duality. So we had to give him Ashuddha Vikalpa. And it was this, I am truth itself. And day by day, through my gradual spiritual practice, I am manifesting the truth that I am in everything that I think, everything that I say, and everything that I do. Do you see the, this statement is coming from awakened consciousness. This statement is an I am statement. It's a statement of truth. And it's a statement based on the ultimate reality. So it's not just the opposite of the Ashuddha Vikalpa that we're trying to get rid of. It's, it's a Shuddha Vikalpa. So this Shuddha Vikalpa, when properly cultivated, can displace the Ashuddha Vikalpa aforementioned. Do you see? But the way to do this is to understand on the Vaikari level what the thing is saying and to, in the Madhyama level, um, work with it, hold it, meditate on the energy of the thought, the emotion of the thought. You know, deal with doubts, ask questions, be clear, etc. Now, we went further. Then I told him to derive a mantra from that Shuddha Vikalpa. Remember, the Shuddha Vikalpa is, I am truth itself. And day by day, through my gradual spiritual practice, I am manifesting that truth in everything that I think, do, and say. Okay? So from that, we derived a truth statement. Aham Satyam. I am truth. Aham Satyam. So we, we, we derived what Vedanta would call a Mahavakya. The Upanishads are peppered with these Mahavakyas. Tattvamasi, that thou art. Aham Brahmasmi. Basically, they're condensed, essentialized forms of Shuddha Vikalpas. So the next thing you have to do is you have to take the Shuddha Vikalpa and get so deep with it, get so familiar with it that you're able to essentialize it into a simple statement like Aham 
Satyam. I am truth. Something like that. Now you have what is called a Mahavakya. Now is where you take it into meditation. So now you sit with it. You meditate on it. You meditate on the energetics of it. You feel into the vibration of holding that thought. And all day long, all you do is hold on to that thought. You hold fast that thought. And then you know what happens? Because it's a Shuddha Vikalpa rooted in absolute reality, it dissolves into the Pashanti Vaj. So it dissolves into the visionary Vaj. And when it dissolves, it takes you with it. Remember, it's rooted to the Paravak. So it has the ability to go all the way, right? And dissolve. And if, if you hold on to it, you'll be taken all the way and you'll be dissolved too. And you'll enter into Pashanti, Paravak. So that's how you do it. These two things. One, you must hear the teaching from a fully awakened consciousness. Then for you to take it all the way into your essence, you must work with it on the level of Vaikari, which is called Shravana, listening. Then you must work with it on the level of Madhyama, which is called thinking, Manana. And then finally, you have to work with it on the level of Pashanti, which is called integrating, realizing, meditating, assimilating, what have you. So I would say those who are watching a lot of YouTube videos are just not doing the work. They're only there on the Vaikari level. They haven't really gotten into the Madhyama level. And maybe they have. But if it's still not working, I would say it's because they haven't worked it into the Pashanti level. And you know, friends, it could be as simple as reviewing it over and over and over. Why do we tell you the same stuff over and over and over? Because, friends, that's the only way it's going to get into the Pashanti level. Swami Vivekananda called it dehypnotization. We've been conditioned, hypnotized by the world. So you now need a counter-conditioning system, which is repetitive, repetitive immersion into Shuddha Vikalpas. And as a result, you purify by sweeping away Ashuddha Vikalpas, and then you get rid of the Shuddha Vikalpas also, and now you're wordlessly liberated. Do you see? And that's really all I wanted to say today. That's how this works. Now, your homework is, think about mantras. What about beach mantras like Hung, Shraung, Yang, Rang, Lang, Wang, Aing, Hring, Kling, right? Kling, these are all beach mantras. My homework for you this week is to ask, what are beach mantras? What's Hallelujah? What's Hring? What are these beach mantras? And how can you fit them into this new understanding, right? Another thing I'm going to ask you is, how does these three levels fit with the Icha Shakti, Kriya Shakti, and Jnana Shakti? How do they fit? Right? So which one is Kriya Shakti? Which one is Jnana Shakti? Which one is Icha Shakti and why? Right? So notice, I'm inviting you now into the process of doing philosophy, of integrating these ideas and making them your own. You play with them. You toy with them. You look for relationships with them. You meditate on them. Right? Okay. And finally, I invite you to teach any of this stuff to people. Right? So we'll have an opportunity when we go into the Q&A today. I'm going to invite you to very briefly teach the class any concept that you were inspired by today. So anything today that, that got to you, if you felt, you, you know how they say, if, if you like this, hit like and subscribe. No, if you like this, if anything here at all spoke to you, I invite you now to speak it into being and tell someone else about it. It's just an exercise, right? So just for fun, if you want, um, in just a moment, we'll go into our Q&A. We'll take Q&A, of course. But I also want for us to just have this time to just teach, teach one another, you know, because when you teach, you immerse your mind in the Shuddha Vikalpa. And as Swami Saraparandaji said to me, um, you learn twice. It's a great blessing to teach, he said, because you learn twice, right? So the only reason I enjoy doing this is because it's my way of immersing in Shuddha Vikalpas. I hear them from my teacher, fully awakened master. I think about them all day long and I talk about them all day long. And as a result, they've worked their way so deeply into my subconscious mind that I dream about them all night long. 
which to me is a sign that I have to some extent worked them into my Pashanti Vag, right? And not only that, another feedback mechanism I have is I'm able to take these ideas through various different religious lens. So I could speak purely from a Christian point of view, purely from an Islam point of view, purely from a Vedanta point of view, purely from a Tantra point of view, which shows me as a feedback mechanism that I've to some extent integrated them. I must have because I'm able to use different words. So in teaching others, you have to be able to use your own words, right? Yeah, Kiam, exactly. The course says to learn is to teach. Do you see this is to teach is to learn and to learn is to teach. Do you see? Is this beautiful? This is basically what I'm saying is teaching is a practice. Teaching is a sadhana because it's the way that you do philosophy, right? So can we stop there? Can we say this is enough for the day? You've already got the four levels of the word. You've learned that paravach is none other than vimarsha. And you've learned that language is none other than a function of awareness to reveal itself unto itself. And as such, God is speech, baby. For God is nothing but awareness, constantly articulating itself and revealing itself to itself in each and every moment. Okay. So. Om Naomi Chit Prati Bham Devim Param Bhairava Yoginim Matarmanas Prameyam Sha Shulam Padam Om salutations to the intuitive insight of pure awareness, the supreme goddess Pratibha, inseparable from Bhairava, who is pure awareness, who has taken up as her residence this lotus heart mounted atop the trident, which has as its three spokes the trinity of knower, knowing, known, Icha, Jnana, Kriya, Pashanti, Madhyama, Vaikari. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu Jai Ma. Oh, I have to say, um, another bit of homework. Isn't this like a subconscious mind theory, a, a Jungian unconscious or a Freudian subconscious theory? Because remember, Pashanti is subtler than mind. So basically what these 10th century AD Kashmiri Shaivas have intuited is that there's a dimension of your being that's subtler than your mind that informs your mind and language. Right? So I want to ask you a question. How do you know the difference between inspiration and subject, uh, a subconscious conditioning coming from ignorance? Both seem to be coming from beyond the mind. How do you tell the difference between inspiration and conditioning? That's my question for you to ponder. So thank you, everyone. Here's some announcements. I really, really am enjoying what's going on in the check-in. Thank you so much. There's been a new initiative in our community to prioritize sadhana practice. So um, we're not just talking, we're sitting and meditating and integrating. So sadhana is very important to me. It's very important to me that you all feel supported and inspired in your daily meditation. It's important to me that every day you're increasing the quantity and quality of your meditation, the depth of your meditation, right? Because relative path, progressive path, rooted in absolute path is kind of my value and principle in this community. So I'd love to see more people meditating, not to become something other than what you are, but as an expression of the fullness of your inherent nature. Okay. So to that, to that end, there's the check-in space. Please use it. It's very inspiring. At least read stuff there. If not post stuff, even if you only meditated two minutes today, 
check it in. I think it's powerful. And doing that will, just like journaling dreams, encourage you to have more vivid dreams. Just like that, check-in will encourage you to, to, to practice more. So I pray to mother, may you practice more. May we all encourage each other. I'm texting with a few people who are now caught in the spiritual fervor of intensifying practice. You know, there are people every day now, there's a group that's meditating for two hours every morning. Not meditating the whole time, but um, some of them are meditating 45 minutes and spending the, but, but they've committed to taking the first two hours of their day to do spiritual work. Okay. So if you're inspired by this, come join the 6 a.m. club or, or join the join the two hours of the of the morning club. Okay. Wherever you are, just inspire one another to practice more, to make spirituality a bigger part of your life. Don't just come to these lectures every now and then when you feel like it's wonderful to do that, but stay with it, you know, stay with your sadhana, make it the core of your life, plan your life around your practice, not your practice around your life. So please use the check-in. Thank you for all of those who are really like killing it in there. Wonderful. Secondly, Friday night, we're going to have our sadhana satsang, which is going to be a Zoom room check-in where it's like we talk to each other about our week's practices like that. So please come to the Friday sadhana satsang. Of course, it's free and open to the public. All of you come. It's going to be like at seven it's for 30 or so minutes. However long it goes is however long it goes. So use the check-in and then come to the Friday satsang. All the classes are continuing throughout this week. So we have our Wednesday class, right? Our 11 a.m. Hatha yoga class. Um, maybe Westerfer can update us. Tuesday is happening. Tuesday night. Okay, Tuesday night meditation. So Westerfer G is hosting Tuesday night meditation. It's one hour of meditation, conversations, transmissions from the awakened consciousness that is Westerfer, right? Um, then there's Wednesday, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, we're not having the kids. Tara came in the other day for, uh, we had the children. I, had, I was having a satsang with the middle schoolers and Tara. <laughs> Don't worry, there's no middle school satsang this Friday. So it'll just be our time, okay? Big kids, big kids satsang. <laughs> so uh, Wednesday, there's going to be class in the morning. And maybe, I don't know, Anisha can say something to this. There might be meditation Wednesday night too. I don't know. See, Tara, Westifer, and Anisha are hosting heroically meditations on Tuesday and Wednesday. A great opportunity to practice together, right? Okay, next Thursday, we're going to have, I mean, this Thursday, is, as always, we're going to have our Tantra Thursdays lecture. Friday, we're going to have our Bhakti Sutra Aprakshana Bhuti class and um, our Friday satsang. Okay, Saturday classes have been suspended for the time being until we hear back and, and, and you know, so just, just note. So everything's typically happening this week. I hope to see you in all the classes, if not at least one or two. Um, thank you so much for coming today. Next week, we're going to pick up this question again and go a little deeper. Um, in what way, I don't yet know. Let's wait to hear from headquarters. Okay, thank you, everyone. Jai Ma Jai Ma. Om Namah Shivaya. Jai Ma Kali. Om.